Mama, what's a podcast? Well, it's when a group of men love their opinions very much. Feminist networks of support are essential for the flourishing of our work both inside and outside of the academy. Since 2014, the Feminist Studies in Religion Forum has worked to develop and support these networks. One such event is the 2018 panel on feminist collaboration and sharing knowledge at the American Academy of Religion meeting. Kate Ott of Drew University moderated a panel featuring Mary Churchill, Sarah Emanuel, Jackie Odago, Mary Hunt, Kwakwalan, and Oluwatomising Orede. Each panelist shared from the space of their own experience and offered insight and advice about their own journeys of navigating academia. The reflections got real. Some focused on what they'd wish they'd known when they were students or early career scholars. Some offered advice on what they would tell feminist colleagues who were trying to survive in the academy or who were considering alternate career paths given the alarming rise in contingent faculty youth within institutions of higher education. Still others explained how to navigate different stages of the journey, including dissertation writing, preparing book proposals, and job applications. They even began tackling how to traverse racial and gender dynamics in the institution. We hope you take a listen, and we hope that you enjoy the offerings of the panelists and tune in for more episodes from Feminists Talk Religion. So without further ado, let's do introductions. I'm just going to go down the line, um, and then you all can decide if you want to go the reverse direction, perhaps, on on people speaking. Um, So at the far end of our table is Kwok Puilan, who is a distinguished visiting professor of theology at Candler School of Theology, and her research interests include biblical interpretation, feminist theology, and post-colonial criticism. She serves as a mentor in the Asian Summer Theological Institute and in various Asian women's networks. You want to clap after each one? (laughs) This isn't like graduation. You don't have to like hold applause. (laughs) Okay, and then Mary Churchill is a lecturer at Sonoma State University in Women's and Gender Studies, Native American Studies, and American Multicultural Studies. She also teaches religious studies and humanities courses at Santa Rosa Junior College. She earned a PhD in 1997 from the University of California, Santa Barbara, in the areas of American Indian religious traditions, religion in America, and women in religion. She has taught at the university level for 25 years, including 10 years as an adjunct lecturer. She has also held a postdoc at the Radcliffe Institute of Harvard University. And then next, we have Oluwatomi Seen, O Red Dane, uh, who also, Tomi is okay as well? Mm-hmm. All right. Who I uh, recently had the privilege of reconnecting and meeting at a Louisville Institute meeting where she is a postdoctoral fellow and visiting assistant professor of Christian theology and ethics at Memphis Theological Seminary in Memphis, Tennessee. Her work engages articulations of African feminist, womanist, post colonial, and black theologies with particular attention to women's voices within the African diaspora. Um, 
And I could probably name a connection for everyone to JFSR with this, but because I was part of the conversation, I do want to name that um, Tomian's one of the authors of another Across Generations, which is on Mercy Odioye. And then we have Jacqueline M. Hidalgo, who is Associate Professor of Latino, Latina O Studies and Religion at Williams College and President of the Academy of Catholic Hispanic Theologians of the United States. She's the author of Revelation in Aztlan, Scriptures, Utopias, and the Chicano Movement. She also recently co-edited with Efrain Agosto. Did I say his last name? Efrain Agosto. Thank you. A collection of essays on Latinxes, the Bible, and migration. Sarah Emanuel is currently a faculty fellow of biblical studies at Colby College. Her work investigates the interplay between traditional historical critical methodologies and contemporary critical, as in feminist sometimes, approaches to biblical texts. Her first book, Humor, Resistance, and Jewish Cultural Persistence in the Book of Revelation, Roasting Rome, is forthcoming from Cambridge University Press. And then we have Mary E. Hunt, who is the co-director of the Women's Alliance for Theology, Ethics, and Ritual, WATER. And I would say she does not need an introduction because she didn't send one to me. <laughs> so this is my moment to roast you. <laughs> what I would say about Mary E. Hunt is that since we are talking about surviving the neoliberal academy, Mary is one of the coolest Catholics that I know. And that's a short list in my world. She also is someone who personally has mentored me through the academy as a young Catholic feminist woman coming up thinking about doing ethics and is also someone who when I chose, so this tells you a bit about her, chose to not go directly into teaching but to work at a nonprofit for seven years she was a model for me to think about how you do academic work outside the academy when the myth of the academy is that the only place to do it is within the academy. Introduce. Do you want to go first? Thank you very much, Kate, and um, thank you to Elizabeth and Nami for inviting me to be part of this panel, and thank you to the sister panelists because um, it's really a, a privilege to be with you and to hear you and to get your mentoring, because I think mentoring is an ongoing process. Um, I also just wanted to mention that the article that you mentioned about um, Reverend Dr. Katie Cannon of Blessed Memory was actually an article that she requested of me following the um, Center for Womanist Leadership event in Richmond, and she called, you know, the event was over on Saturday at noon, and she had an email on my screen Monday morning. Would you please write me an article that will describe what went on at our meeting? We'd like to use it for promotional purposes. And um, that was a, for me as, uh, as a white woman at the conference, which was, as you can imagine, uh, largely, if not almost totally, African-American and, uh, and Latinx and so forth, was, a, was a, a real great honor to have her ask me to do that. And so we published it in Water before her untimely demise. And um, I echo Elizabeth's words that um, it is in her memory that we join tonight and to uh, continue the work that she led us in so valiantly for so long to the very end of her life. So if you wanted, it's here. Um, 
I am delighted to share some thoughts with the forum, and I want to thank the people who lead the forum. This is not easy work to do in terms of the kind of, of intersectional work we try to do and uh, so forth. I want to thank the forum people for persisting in this work. And I want to discuss um, balancing fair employment and doing what one feels called to do in complicated and very unjust times. I see this kind of, uh, kind of continuation of the feminist liberation theologians conversation that we, the network conversation we just finished a half an hour ago, which was on economics, macro and micro being intertwined. And those of you uh, who were at that conversation will know what I mean, that this is really an ongoing conversation from that one. Given the current state of the world in which tiny percentages of people own majority shares of wealth in virtually every country, it's not surprising that the academy would have a similar ownership pattern. So even those who are hired in the most elite institutions are still working for systems for which they are not finally stakeholders. The prospect then of most of us, especially women, people of color, queer folks, people living with disabilities, immigrants, and the like, to have the tenure-track dream, dream job is probably not something we will find. And that becomes increasingly clear from generation to generation due in large measure to the issues that we problematize in our work in feminist and womanist studies in religion. Racism, sexism, ableism, homo and trans hatred, and I could list many more, which condition both our choices and our chances. They condition our choices and our chances. But in my view, it's only because our dreams are also co-opted by the same neoliberal capitalist model some would now say fascist model, that I think we have to begin to think about liberating and complexifying our dreams as well as our analysis of the situation in which we find ourselves. Most of what I consider to be the best work of feminists and womanists in religion, especially the content of our teaching, our research, and our activism, is critical of the established order, disruptive of the status quo, and meant to empower people to change the morally hideous context in which we find ourselves. As such, it is hardly the work that most educational institutions want to underwrite by hiring us. It did not take me or my generation long to find this out, and it is much more obvious now. The work that we do is antithetical to the institutions in which we want to do it. I have participated in the AAR mentoring project for several years, and I've worked with over 80 interns through the Women's Alliance for Theology, Ethics, and Ritual, many of whom have gone on to graduate studies. So I've been in this conversation for several decades. I wish I could report that things are improving. I cannot. But I can add some data to the mix in the hope that together we can find creative and useful ways forward. Recall that there are three guides that have been written, and I think they lay out the history of this particular problem in the academy. First one, A Guide to the Perplexing, a survival manual for women in religious studies, was published in 1992 by Judith Plaskow, Rita Nakashima Brock et al. With just that, how to get through the hoops in academia with the assumption that there would be a job for you at the other end. And for some, there was a job. Did you know that Mary Daly had three job offers when she finished graduate school? How many of us can say we had three job offers? Our first one. <laughs> The second is a guide for women in religion making your way from A to Z, published in 2004, which I edited with a team, and we took account of the increasing diversity in the field. In addition to more women of color, more queer women, we noted that some women also achieved emeritus status as part of the established career trajectory, kindergarten to emeritus status. But we also noticed that the academic market was beginning to shrink and women would do well to broaden their scope of employment options. Ten years later, in 2014, Keisha Ali, Monique Moultrie, and I published a revised guide, a revised version of the second guide, 
to reflect the many changes in the field. We emphasized the ways technology has altered the landscape and insisted on a realistic need to cast a wide net in thinking about getting jobs and making career choices. Five years later, I can say we were right and that both technology and the market intertwine to shape our options and possibilities now. Let me simply offer three practical insights that I share with my colleagues as I think about this. First, think creatively beyond teaching. Since we all spent decades in school to become religious studies professionals, there's a tendency to think that we will become what we have had modeled for us, namely teachers. The reality is that most lawyers don't go to law school to become, most students don't go to law school to become uh, professors of law, but to become lawyers. And most medical students don't go to medical school to become professors of medicine, but to become doctors. I think we need to take a clue from them and imagine that our studies set us up for many more kinds of work than we can imagine, for which teaching is only one, and perhaps not even the most exciting. There are many ways to contribute, contribute by writing, activism, working in publishing, in ministry, government, religious leadership, anti-violence work, the sky is the limit. While some few people will get the increasingly scarce tenure-track jobs, and most of those people will be white, male, and heterosexual, there are many exciting, interesting ways to use religious studies in a world sorely in need of our insights. We talked about that in the last hour. However, I'm deeply aware of the race and economic privilege that, con that condition the possibility to do that work. I like to think that my own career, as previously mentioned by my introducer, at Water is an early example of how that might work. But I underscore that my race and my class privilege conditioned the possibility that Diane New, my partner here present, and I were able to carve out new and we hope useful space for others and for ourselves. But it was a function of certain forms of privilege that we share. Second, I would say in addition to thinking beyond teaching, Adjunct teaching, in my view, is a case of diminishing returns. And I want to say this very clearly to put it on the table. Circumstances differ widely in terms of what makes an adjunct job palatable. Getting teaching experience on the CV, a spouse's employment in the area, young children at home, etc. But institutions benefit enormously and adjuncts, adjuncts suffer increasingly over time. One year, one course, one institution is probably enough to get what one can get out of adjunct teaching. One year, one course, one institution is probably what I would consider the limit, and then we get diminishing returns. One can ask the question, do I like to teach? Do I like this kind of teaching? Does it pay enough to make it worthwhile? Where can I get a full-time job that will be more satisfying and more just? You can get this in a semester. You can ask yourself and answer those questions in a semester. But every year after that, the institution, which probably doesn't increase your salary per course, get someone, namely you, who has increased teaching experience, more familiarity with particular institutional operations, a professor whom students will likely ask for recommendations, advice, time to talk, none of which are remunerated if you are an adjunct. In short, it's a win for the institutions and a gradually less lucrative deal for the professor. I counsel against it for more than a year, max two. And the third thing I will finish with is get some marketable training. The real issue is how to make a living as a person with religious studies training. Isn't that, am I the only one? We want to make a living at doing the things for which we're trained. This is made all the more complex for people of color, for women, people from minority faith traditions or from no religious tradition whatsoever, people with disabilities, immigrants, out queer people, etc. One helpful way forward, very concrete, is to get a marketable training 
in a cognate field. For example, some people get social work degrees in order to do therapy in private practice rather than ministry with a denominational hat on in a denomination that won't hire them. Others learn nonprofit management skills, including grant writing, accounting, public relations, social media, all the things that one needs to run a small organization, maybe an MBA in nonprofit management. None of these things, frankly, are taught in most schools of religion. Still others find their way in information technology, library science, even business, where there are job opportunities in seminaries, for example. Some people gravitate toward administration rather than teaching, finding fulfilling careers in supervision and leadership roles. We're taught that those are somehow lesser roles in the academy than those who become tenure-track professors, have uh, the perks of full professorship, and end up as emerita. It is my view that that's not the case, and that they wouldn't have the possibility for those jobs without the support of the variety of other things that make an institution go. The socioeconomic parameters of our field are real and shrinking as I read the market, so we have to rely on our vivid imaginations and our serious solidarity and networking to help one another build new options while we dismantle the foundations that currently exclude and thus shrink the field. I look forward to our conversation with the hope that emerging scholars will find as much enjoyment and as much fulfillment as longtime scholars have enjoyed. Thank you so much. Uh, good evening, everyone. I also want to extend my gratitude and thanks to Nami and Elizabeth for allowing me to be a part of this discussion. Um, I do want to name that I am an emerging scholar. I'm a junior scholar on the job market, so my focus for the next five minutes will be sort of on storytelling uh, and, and what I'm currently experiencing in this moment. Um, but I'll start with saying, when I was asked to be a part of this conversation, um, I was told to consider what I, I wish I had known uh, earlier on and what I might have told that former self. And so that former self for me is a graduate student. Uh, and so I actually found an email that I wrote to a friend my first semester of my doctoral program, which was about eight years ago. And uh, I... I have a, a quote, and I'll just name it. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. There is some profanity, and I apologize, but I want to be fully honest with what it felt like for me uh, at the beginning of my, my schoolwork in a PhD program. So I wrote, I said, school is, well, awful. It's mean. It's hierarchical. It's patronizing. It's a game, a big fucking game. I hate it. I barely enjoy the material anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say that, oh, if I had just known certain things, none of those feelings would have existed. I don't think that that's true. And so I want to give space to honor that younger self and, you know, to say, preach on, narrate, <laughs> let yourself feel. Um, I'm not going to take away her feelings. Uh, I think that they're valid and important. But I will say that in looking back at that email, I sort of was given the opportunity to think about um, all that has happened since then and sort of follow that trajectory. And in doing that, I will say that for me, it did get better. I even joked at our final sort of 
PhD program party that I should, if there were accolades, I should perhaps get like most improved or something like that. <laughs> because it did, for me, get, get better year by year. And of course, I recognize that that's not the story for all um, students. I know that it could be the reverse, and there's absolutely no shame in leaving um, at any point, truly. But in terms of that, it did get better. I was, I was given the opportunity to work at a variety of institutions for the last three years of, of the program from comps through the dissertation phase. Um, I adjuncted at Seton Hall uh, University in New Jersey and also at NYU in New York City. Um, and then after graduating uh, in 2017, I was a visiting assistant professor of religion at Oberlin College. Uh, and then I was a visiting scholar at NYU again, and I'm a faculty fellow at Colby with a book coming out um, in 2019. So I'm, I'm at this moment, moment of wanting to celebrate all of those things and celebrate, you know, that trajectory of, of looking back and, and seeing all that has happened. But in doing that, I also want to be very real and realistic. So as an emerging scholar on the job market, I'll say this is my fourth year on the job market. And in going through the, the application process and the rejection process and the interviewing process year by year, uh, I have learned a few things, and, and perhaps some things that I wish I had known earlier, but, but for those in similar positions to me now, this is sort of where I'm at, and I'm happy to, to hear what you think after we all um, speak. But one, uh, and this is particular to the job market, a lot is luck, mm -hmm. and it's really true. It, it comes down to who is on the search committee, what their interests are, what their affect is at the time in which they're reading your application. Are they hungry? Did they just have a student <laughs> email them like, did I miss anything in class? I mean, they could be really irritable. And, and I, I, I try to, it's hard to hold on to that, but it's something to really hold on to. So for instance, when I was still ABD with no date of a defense in sight, I was a finalist at an R1 institution. Uh, and I was, I was runner up for that. So had the person who got the position said, said no, it would have been mine. And now I'm on my fourth year and uh, I haven't had another <laughs> Uh, final round in an R1 institution since that moment. A lot of it came down to who was on um, the search committee that year. Second, it is not a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. So all of those accolades that I've just named, all those places I've been able to teach at, it doesn't matter uh, necessarily. Um, I, I know this is being recorded, so I won't name the institution, but um, last year I was a finalist for another tenure track gig, and it went to someone who I, I, I know all the finalists who just didn't have anything, barely had anything on a CV, barely, I don't even think this person had any conference presentations. And, and I, I, I cried a lot. I, I almost decided to quit um, because you go and you go and you go and you build that CV and you build that CV and you build that CV and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. The third thing that I've learned, and I don't know if this will ring to anybody else in this space, um, but it isn't easy being Jewish focusing in New Testament studies. So I'm a Jewish New Testament scholar and one of the things I was told during my doctoral program was um, yeah, you're going to do so great on the market because you're different. Who doesn't want a Jewish New Testament scholar? Yeah, a lot of people don't. <laughs> um, and if this year's job market says anything, most of the tenure track positions in New Testament are at seminaries. Uh, and even when they don't say a statement of faith uh, is required, most do, but even when that is missing, it's 
implied. Um, I, I, I actually remember speaking with you, Dr. West, uh, uh, at, at Drew. I really wanted an interview at PSR. And so I went and we spoke together about putting together that application. And one of the things that they wanted us to talk about was, you know, how can you contribute to the ministry of the church? And I just started crying because I don't even know what that means. Um, and I don't think I should. I think it should be valuable to have someone who can come and teach about, you know, a Jewish context and Jewish culture and the relationship between um, uh, New Testament and, and uh, you know, Jewish history. Um, but that's, that's not the case. And I think that that's a problem. Another thing I've learned is that the job market is completely absurd uh, to the point of being equally horrifying and comical. So just another, for storytelling purposes, last year uh, interviewing on Skype and someone hacked into my Skype account and sent everyone that I had ever talked to on Skype. So this, that was my third year on the market, so I had had interviews on Skype first, second, and third year. Everyone I had ever interviewed with had gotten a link to pornography. So I had to go and email. Everyone's like, I'm so sorry. Please don't open that link. That was not me. Um, and thankfully, one person wrote back saying, like, this is the most hilarious thing that can happen. You know, like, truly, the job market is nuts. And I have found that we all have these kinds of stories. I have a colleague who, whose bag never made it, and then the chair ended up offering him his underwear. And, and so, like, I actually, like, want to write a book, you know, like, or, or collect stories and publish yes. a book. Like, you yeah. know, we all have these crazy stories. So those are the main things. A, a final, final point I'll say is um, for those finishing up their doctoral work and, and entering the job market uh, is to trust your judgment, but also don't be afraid to ask for help. How can you possibly know how to put together a CV until someone has told you? How could you possibly know what it means to submit a book proposal to different types of presses? You, you can't know until you have that conversation. So trust yourself through it all. Know who you are and what you want, but also don't be afraid to ask for help. Okay, so silver lining, <laughs> what to do in terms of survival. Um, I, I don't know. What I will say, <laughs> what I will say is in doing this work and having the opportunity to, to go back and feel that pain of that first year doctoral <coughs> student and then now is, is, um, is just knowing that I, I did find that passion again. And, and um, so to, to know that you know, I might be out, I might not have a tenure track position, I might have to leave the academy, that's a reality that you know, we've, we've already been talking about. Um, but I, I would say just hold on to that, that passion, hold on to that drive, hold on to that um, desire to push against the grain for your cause. Um, and I'll just end by saying this, this opportunity to speak and to think about you know, going from then until now, um, I'm giving a, a paper on Sunday at 1 p.m. for gender sexuality in the Bible. And doing this and thinking about holding on to that passion and just really honoring that passion, even know, knowing that I might be out um, of, of the academy at some point, um, is it, it actually transformed how I'm going to give the paper. So I just said, I'm just going to be brave. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to go against the grain. Um, it's going to be, I'm horrified. It's going to be like ever so slightly performative, which I never thought I would ever do. But in being here and being asked to, to do this reflection, I'm just going to own it and use that as my survival tactic. And uh, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. I guess I want to echo the thanks 
uh, to Nami and Elizabeth for organizing this because I really appreciate the diversity of perspectives and contexts that are represented on this panel. And it's amazing to me, Sarah, how much I resonate with so much of what you said, even though I am 10 years out from where you are and yet the horrifying memory of the job market <laughs> still gives me nightmares. Um, and I won the academic lottery, right? And I, and I don't say that entirely facetiously because I have tenure at a wealthy small liberal arts college that will probably survive the apocalypse. And there is nothing I could tell my younger self that would guarantee I have this job. I really don't believe that. I really believe it was sheer, in my case, dumb luck. Right, but it was it was a whole. It's not to undervalue the hard work and sleepless nights I put in, but I also have lost. Um, I'm now, as I said, um, you know, uh, almost nine years out from getting my PhD, and I would say, yeah, no, I literally lost seventy five percent of my friends over the process. Right, so the the number is about like in the sense of people who have not gotten a tenure track job, not stayed in the academy, that's very real to me. And there's nothing I could say that could have helped me get this job, but there's perhaps something I can tell you from the perspective of having won the lottery, of things that I maybe could have held on to more closely that would have helped me survive both what I had to go through to get tenure and what I had to endure in losing uh, so many of my dearest friends out of the academy. So I'd like to start by referring to the work of American Studies President Roderick A. Ferguson. Um, his books, The Reorder of Things, and especially We Demand, The University and Student Protest, provide compelling <coughs> histories of how universities have managed to diffuse dissent over the past few decades. His work depicts an, an academy that is a site of ethical peril even as it is also a site of radical potential. He concludes We Demand with a set of rules for academic radicals. And I found the whole book helpful and motivating for a good 30 minutes last summer when I read it. And that's really good for me. I am a darkly cynical person. Um, but I, I found the whole book helpful. And I especially found that last chapter motivating. And the thing that I really want to highlight tonight is his sixth rule from that chapter. And that rule is, assume you don't belong. Just assume it, 100% of the time. So we're all in this room because we're feminists of different stripes. And I think it really bears repeating, US universities were not built for us. Now, they were not built for us for different reasons. We're different us's in this room. The universities were not built for us. They were not built with us in mind. Um, and they were not built to nurture the work that most of us want to do, right? Um, Ferguson himself uh, draws on a perhaps problematic old Christian trope when he articulates assume you don't belong. He says one can be in the university without being of it. Um, but I, I, I find it helpful. And the first reason I find it helpful is just that it reminds me that when I feel like I don't belong, uh, or when I'm experiencing what we might classically call imposter syndrome, that's not me. <laughs> that's the institution, right? Um, and it's the overall structure. Um, so yes, of course I don't belong. Of course I feel like an imposter, and of course other people may register that I don't quite fit into this space. 
In a roundtable on the underrepresentation of Latinx scholars in the professoriate, Lena Palacios referenced a similar sentiment, although she drew on the work of Fred Moten and Stefano Harney in the Undercommons. And Palacio argued, quote, we need to throw away our imposter syndrome and embrace a newly defined infiltrator syndrome, end quote. Okay, so we don't belong. But if we have any sort of foothold here, as I am lucky enough to have, how can we use that foothold to work for the justice that matters to us? And how can we build networks of infiltrators, right? The allies with whom we transform the academy. Remembering we don't belong also has another valence. Through the help of trusted allies, we can try to hold on to our reasons for being in the academy so we can measure our goals and our successes by our own standards and not by the standards of the academy. And as one of these people that I have lost along the way, my former Williams colleague, Ji Young Um, described in her essay on being a failed professor, oftentimes failure is simply that site that refuses the recognition of the neoliberal academy. As Ferguson might warn, when I am not failing, when the academy recognizes and rewards me, that's actually a great moment of peril for me and my work. It doesn't mean I fail. Maybe the Academy and I have magically hit upon some <laughs> fascinating like, sweet spot. But it is a moment of peril because the institution wasn't built for what I want to do. So if it recognizes me, what did it recognize in me? Assuming I don't belong also allows me to approach the Academy through the lens of what Derek Bell called racial realism. And that means that I remember that the Academy is, of course, a white supremacist heteropatriarchal, imperial, exploitative structure. So I can be realistic about that, all right? I, don't, I, I understand when it fails my ideals for it because I know the frame it's operating in. And one of the things that Moten and Harney recommend is this notion that we can steal to the academy in order to steal from the academy. So we have some privileges in the system that doesn't mean we have to be loyal to institutions that would never be loyal to us, right? Um, now, that, that doesn't mean that um, we need to totally uh, disappear from the institutions. It's more that I view my loyalty as being towards people and towards my other infiltrator allies, and that's where my loyalty lies. And in as much as the institution can help me with that loyalty, great. And when the institution cannot, I don't have to be loyal to it. It also means, though, that if you are trying to get tenure, as I did, you have to be realistic about where you're willing to compromise and what you need to do to get tenure in as much as it's not going to grade against something you cannot stand. Uh, for me, I'd say that the hardest part of this was actually, believe it or not, um, my writing, right? Uh, for those of you who write fluid, beautiful prose by nature, congratulations to you. That is not my, uh, that's not where I inherently come from. And so I learned that I just had to let go um, and write for the sake of writing. Um, the perfect is the enemy of the good here. Right, And that sometimes I've also learned that people need the things that I feel I said in a really shitty way 
sometimes other people actually need them, so it's better to say them in a shitty way and then live with that than to not say them at all. The final way that I take Ferguson's point about assume you don't belong is to remind myself that being a professor and a scholar is still a job. It's still a job, okay? Those people and those actions that give my life meaning must always be rooted outside of the university. Even when there are profound moments, working with my colleagues, teaching my students. Um, but being in but not of the university means always making time, and it's a struggle, but making time for those facets of my soul and my life that cannot be circumscribed by the academy. Now, whether that is family, friends, cooking, travel, a knitting circle, make time for those things that keep you human and for those people that remind you, you are still human. Right. Thank you. Hi. Can you all hear me? I tend to be soft-spoken. Uh, my name is Tomi Ordain. Uh, many thanks to Nami and Elizabeth for the invitation. Many thanks to you all. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Um, thank you all for coming as well. I wrote things. We will see in what order I tell them. But um, I want to start off by kind of telling a little bit about my story about how I came into my doctoral program. Uh, so I went to... Um, undergrad and enjoyed undergrad very much uh, to the point where I didn't really have focus. Ultimately landed um, in a religious studies major because that was something where I found passion and interest and that was where my curiosity was peaked. Last semester of senior year, I'm trying to figure out what am I doing? I overhear a classmate talking about going to seminary and I say, okay, I'm gonna do that. So I'm very late applying. <laughs> to you know, seminaries and divinity schools, um, get into Duke Divinity School, love it, find out that it's the place where I can continue asking the questions that I have, continue um, trying to understand um, what I'm passionate about. Get to the end of that journey. Apply to masters in uh, marriage and family therapy programs because I think that's where I wanna, that's what I wanna do, that's where I wanna go. Those are expensive and the programs that I did get into didn't offer me money so I said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit back um, and see what else um, is revealed to me. So I'm, I'm sitting in a class the last semester of Divinity School, and I overhear a colleague saying that they're applying to doctoral programs. <laughs> I said, oh yeah, I'll do that. So I'm really, this is, I'm, I'm really bad at planning, as you can see. Um, and so, you know, I, I get, I barely <laughs> get some applications in on the deadline, and um, I, I get into um, Duke Divinity School's THD program, and I love it. It's extremely hard, um, it's extremely rewarding, um, it teaches me a ton about myself. So I, I, I wanna talk, um, so I mean, the audience that we were kind of uh, given to kind of talk to ranged from uh, dissertation writing, uh, people in dissertation, write, dissertation writing phase, to um, people um, figuring out the sexism and racism within their institutions, to junior faculty, to people doing book proposals, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll try to speak a little bit to each of the, the different phases. Um, I just graduated last year, so I'm pretty new uh, to the whole teaching world. So I, I, wanna, I, I wanna say a few things about um, advice that I would give myself um, as a doctoral student. Uh, the first thing that I would say to do, which I did late, um, is to 
hang out with the peers who magically have a ton of opportunities handed to them. Um, I started hanging out with my white male peers. <laughs> and sitting in their, you know, sitting in their circles, um, you know, and the professor would stop by, so hanging out with them, I'd hear their conversations, I'd hear about funding opportunities, I'd hear about positions coming available that nobody else knew about, mm -hmm. I'd hear about all these different things, and I realized I should have been hanging with them since day one. So, uh, doctoral students, hang out with the people um, who you see magically getting extra funding, magically getting extra opportunities. Um, they know something that you do not know, so make sure you position yourself to know the same things. One thing I learned from these peers is that they, um, they ask for everything they want. They do not hesitate whatsoever to ask for whatever they want. In my program, we didn't have a ton of teaching opportunities, but somehow I had colleagues who, would, who were co-teaching classes. And I tried to figure out, how did they do that? Oh, they just asked. They, they talked to the people, they talked to the higher-ups, they knew who to talk to. So, bare minimum, try your hand at asking for what you want. Try your hand at being creative around finding extra funding that somehow a school that doesn't have extra funding has for certain people. Mm. I would say also, um, again, I came from a place that didn't give a ton of opportunities. What I saw my peers doing um, was volunteering to lecture, volunteering to teach class sessions um, you know, of their mentors. That way, the things that you know, all of us weren't getting in the program, they were kind of able to, again, creatively try to figure out ways uh, to gain experience, to, to figure out um, you know, what teaching on the other side felt like. So get creative, um, volunteer uh, time, volunteer um, the opportunity to co-teach, but find ways to get the experience that you might not be getting otherwise. As far as being on the junior faculty side, again, I'm a, I'm a postdoctoral fellow. I'm, I'm in my beginning of my second year. And it's been a short time, but I've, I've really learned a lot um, in, in really good and really bad ways. The first thing that I learned to do in my first faculty meeting, because as a junior faculty, they're trying to figure out, okay, who wants to do this? Who wants to do that? They look at you as a junior faculty. They say, well, you're new. How about you do such and such? Um, a little birdie reminded me of the conditions of my postdoc um, when I was asked to do something. And I remembered, I don't have to do that. So again, I, res I respectfully declined doing that. And you know, I was protected by the parameters of my postdoc. Um, but, but the thing that I, I practiced doing, because my, my, my natural inclination is to say, I have to do what they want because I want to make sure I'm on their good side. But, but the, the thing that I practiced doing was actually pausing. So even if you're in a position where you feel like you can't say no to a ton of things, you can, you can exercise some semblance of power by pausing. You can say, I, I need 24 hours to think about that. That gives you space. That gives them space to potentially forget that they asked you to, to do what they asked you to do. <laughs> but it actually gives you space to actually think through, okay, if I'm realistic uh, with my time and about my commitments, can I do this? And if I can do this, and if it will be beneficial for me to do this, then I will do this. But if I can't do this, let me try to figure out at least a diplomatic way of trying to say no. Another thing that I would say um, is to figure out how to, so I mean, we're all tiered within our respective positions. Um, figure out how to work your tier. If you're a junior faculty, find out how to make 
how you're positioned in your respective uh, institution uh, work for you. If there are certain committees where you know that you will have a little bit more say and influence and power, and you know you'll be assigned to committees anyway, but be strategic, maneuver, figure out how to get to places that are going to teach you um, as much uh, as possible, teach you what you need to know, uh, help you gain exposure, help you gain some voice, um, so that if you are pigeonholed into kind of doing certain things anyway, at least there are things that will benefit you in the long run. And self-care, I mean, this is um, on the doctoral level, junior faculty level, all levels. Uh, I, I heard this first from um, Dr. Cannon. Anybody um, doing doctoral work, um, anybody trying to teach needs to be seeing a therapist. <laughs> um, I've heard this also from, from Emily Towns as well. Um, make sure you figure out what self-care is going to look like for you, whether that's going to be uh, therapy, whether that's going to be creative work in any way, shape, or form, whether that's going to be hobbies. Make self-care a part of your productive routine. You can't produce if you're not well. So make sure you interject uh, space to make sure that you are well so that you can produce as well as possible. And in terms of all alternative careers, um, I mean, I've thought about it. Um, I, I, I agree with the advice that was given on the panel. Um, make sure you start talking to um, uh, other people, familiarizing yourself with other people, making friends with other people who are doing things that you might like, like to do. Um, if you are great at editing, make sure you talk to some publishers. Make sure you kind of look around, see what's out there. Um, if you love the work that places like Wabash is doing, see what positions might be available. See what other things um, combine your interest and your passion with work that keeps you around the field. And I mean, overall, the, the thing I would kind of end with is that um, either way, um, whether you're in the doctoral program and hanging in there, whether you're a junior faculty, whether you're trying to think of an alternative career, you have to love what you're doing. Staying in a position or, or in work that you hate is going to kill your soul. So whatever you do and however you do it, whether it's adjuncting, full-time, uh, three times on the job market, four times, whatever, um, make sure that you are in a place where you uh, love what you're doing. That, that would be the, the advice that I would extend. Thank you. Good evening, I'm Mary Churchill from Sonoma State University. Um, first, I'd like for us to acknowledge that we are on native homelands here, that we are on the homelands of the Cheyenne and Arapaho people, of the Ute people and the Shoshone people, um, so that our work uh, takes place within the context of indigenous homelands, and it's appropriate that we, uh, that's the first thing to say. Um, I also want to thank Elizabeth and Nami for inviting me, and uh, it's really an honor to participate in a panel of such wisdom. So I also uh, would uh, ask your um, indulgence of me. I have a cough, so hopefully I won't have a fit uh, while I'm speaking, but um, I may have to, to cough for a moment. Um, so I, um, I wrote this, all right, my ideas come out of having won the lottery, actually, and then um, having lost the lottery uh, in, a, in a way that's still perplexing to me, um, I was hired into a um, tenure track line in women's and gender studies, and I didn't write my tenure book. And so I didn't go through tenure evaluation. Um, and so, gee, what do you do after that? Right? It would seem, do you just leave? Or, and so, um, so in this 
period of 25 years of, of uh, uh, teaching in the academy, I've spent the last 11 years as an adjunct. And so partly I'm kind of, I feel like I'm a road warrior, really. Uh, and um, that uh, my adjuncting um, has not primarily been in religious studies, um, but I think this is one of the strategies of survival. Um, so of diversification, right, of diversification. So, all right, so that's, that's the context. This is about my, my experience and my perspectives. It may not be relevant for you. It might, be, might not be pertinent to you. Um, but I called uh, this the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, so that's my organizational schema here. So my first recommendation is about um, to both specialize and to generalize. That I specialized in a very narrow area of American Indian religious traditions. Uh, but I also knew there's very few jobs in that, in that area. And so um, I also um, emphasized women in religion, religion in America. And where did I end my first job was in women's and gender studies. And over the years, I've taught in uh, Native American studies, ethnic studies, and then at the, at the JC, as I mentioned, uh, in humanities and in religious studies. So I also um, have taught in, there are other like uh, pockets of teaching that universities have. They have these like degree completion programs, you know, for people, you know, universities are trying to make money in all the ways they can. So you have two years that are mishmash, we got a degree completion program for you. Find out what are those programs, those pockets of money that your institutions have. Um, there's also teaching FYE, like freshman year experience and composition and um, yeah, these kinds of things. So this is about staying alive. I think that's my message is how do you, how do you stay afloat? Um, so specialize and generalize. Make yourself a uh, person of, of all trades. Uh, and then uh, I would also say, please, please, please learn how to teach online. This is the wave of the future. It's online teaching and blended or hybrid teaching. You, if um, I, am, I was not taught that way, so I encourage you to take classes that are online and also to t take advantage of any um, programs um, to enable you to, or certificates, to enable you to teach online and blended courses because um, that's where a lot of the, um, Money is, uh, potentially, and not just for um, adjunct faculty, but also for uh, tenure track and tenure line faculty, too. Um, and that's a whole other skill set that you have to develop. Uh, it's a whole other way of thinking about teaching, and actually it will help your face-to-face -face teaching to learn about online teaching, too. All right, um, more on the good. Um, writing. Uh, develop a writing practice. Quilan knows about this because we, we were working on um, some projects together, but developing a writing practice, meaning write daily, write daily. Even if it's not you're writing on whatever particular you know, article you're working on, just continue to write. Because what I found through writing was that I found my voice. I found my own legitimacy as an intellectual, as a thinker through the daily process of writing, of coming back, of keeping the faucet open in some sense, that those ideas are always coming through. 
Um, so it, it strengthens your own internal authority, which you really need to survive in the academy. Um, I also, just in terms of dissertation writing and a um, couple pieces of advice, uh, I finished in a dissertation writing group. We got together once a week and we didn't talk about our work, we just sat there and wrote and all four of us finished. So pretty good numbers. And also this advice was helpful to me too. Until your writing is the number one priority, aside from, you know, of course, eating and you know, your family, taking care of your family, but until it's your number one priority, it's not going to get done. So I found that to be true. When I had to get something done, when I pushed everything away, I was able to do it. So just an idea. Okay, another good, part of the good is get involved in the AAR. Um, I have found the AAR to be a uh, really a, a gold mine, a wealth. Um, even though my own uh, area is religious studies, I have felt the most kinship among the feminist and womanist theologians. That this is, this is my home here. Uh, I've been uh, generously mentored by people in this room, um, and I have passed that generosity down to other people I have mentored. So get, get involved here. Join steering committees. You learn about um, publishing opportunities. You learn about uh, you know, all kinds of things that are, that are going on in the workings. It's not, it's not extracurricular. It's actually part of the workings of being a scholar to being part of these groups. So, okay, now uh, the bad. Um, our disciplines aren't called disciplines for nothing. Uh, I can't remember the name of this book but, uh, that I read, but I found this so instructive. The notion that, um, for instance, lawyers, when they go to, to, to law school, they don't learn how to practice law for the most part. They're taught the theory. They're taught the ideas, right? They can learn how to practice law later. So similarly, in a way, graduate school is about disciplining our minds because as we advance through our careers, we have more and more power, more and more dis uh, discretion. And so what might you do with that power, right? Well, if you've been thoroughly disciplined in your graduate program, you're not going to stray very far, right, from what has been a process of inculcation in graduate school. So I think it's important to be uh, watchful of the process of disciplining that you uh, are undergoing uh, at different stages of your career. Because if you're not aware of it, you're just going to replicate what was done to you, right? Um, and and you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of balancing act. Can you, um, um, can you think independently? Can you push against um, the, the norms? Um, uh, also, I think this is, this is true about how you set up your research that if your research falls too far out of the disciplinary boundaries, it may also not find favor. And that's, that's, uh, that's a risk, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a challenge to negotiate. Um, all right, another part of the bad, the contingent life. It's horrible. It's very hard. You rarely say no to uh, classes that are offered to you because you don't know from one semester to the next uh, what, uh, what your schedule will be. Um, I've sometimes taught eight o'clock classes and then, uh, and then there'll be a break and then my last class will end at 10 p.m. Mm. 
So it's 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 like a it's like you're it's like a a race in some ways. Um, I have uh, put 60,000 miles on my car in three years, driving from different institutions. Um, and I teach summer school and intercession. I often carry six courses a semester. That's a lot, that's a lot of prep work. Um, but that's what it means to stay alive. I'm a successful adjunct, mm -hmm. right? Um, but there's a cost to, to pay for that. So, and um, now the ugly. It's not you, it's the system. It's not you, it's the system. Um, I think sometimes we blame ourselves uh, when we operate under a lot of conditions that are not of our own making. That we interiorize, uh, we, we blame ourselves um, in situations that are frankly unmanageable, right? Having to teach six classes a semester, drive all over creation, is unmanageable, mm -hmm. right? And then I'm blaming myself, I didn't do a good job, mm -hmm. right? We have to exteriorize some of this, that we did not set up the situation that we are in, mm -hmm. and that the academy has changed uh, tremendously with, what is it, 70% of the academy being adjuncts now. It is, is the promise that many of us were offered um, it, it cannot be fulfilled and, and will not be fulfilled now. So, um, so I think you know when that teaching loads, class sizes, schedules, uh, when we get paid, uh, systems of advancement. These are all outside of our control, and so um, don't take that on. Don't interiorize that because it's self-defeating. So, all right, if you swim with piranhas, sometimes you're what's for lunch. If you swim with piranhas, sometimes you are what's for lunch. That's been my experience, that, that in many departments, the departmental politics are um, really challenging, really challenging. We have very smart people, I find, who sometimes eat each other alive. Um, uh, and the stakes, the, uh, what's really being argued over is very minimal. Um, so I think, I think you have to you know, last semester it was me uh, uh, who went through the kind of situation that was challenging. Um, this semester it's another one of my colleagues, right? So just keep, keep moving, you know, keep doing your work if you want to try to survive in this way. And, uh, it's, and just, you know, try to stay out of the piranha pool, I guess. I don't know. All right. Finally, uh, the meaning of life. Um, <laughs> right. In hindsight... Uh, I've made sacrifices I wish I hadn't. I've sacrificed, I've lived away from my family uh, because, you know, you have to go where there's a job opportunity, right? Um, I have sacrificed my health. I've sacrificed my diet, my sleep, my relationships. Um, and in all honesty, it hasn't been worth it. This work is a career. It is not what's most important in life. It is not the meaning of life. I thought somehow I would find the meaning of life here. You know, the studying religion, right? But it, it's, not the, it's not the meaning of life. And I, I regret some of the, the decisions that I made not to go home for holidays, right? Or not to see this person, right? And so it's only a part of life. But when I think about alternative works, there's only one other work that really interests me. 
So really, um, it turned out academia was really right for me anyway. Uh, so I'm kind of in this both and place of, yeah, this is really, really hard. Um, but now that I'm you know, sort of looking at retirement 10 years down the road, thinking there's a lot more to life. My relationships, my family, my community, my activism, my dogs, my garden, you know, these kinds of things. Um, I didn't believe that when I was, uh, you know, an assistant uh, on, the, on the tenure track. I didn't believe that. Mm -hmm. So now I do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't really want to end on such a downer. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, gee. <laughs> what can I say? Um, I, I, I don't know. This is my 25th year coming here. And I just so much love to, to see friends. I feel like this is a kind of community where I can speak openly about these things. I would not have talked about these things before. So anyway, I hope you can learn uh, from some of the uh, places where I've you know, had to negotiate. All right, thank you. Good evening. My name is Kwok Pui Lan. I too want to thank Elizabeth and Naomi for inviting me to join this wonderful panel. Next year would be the 30th anniversary of mine receiving the doctorate degree. So I have had a long teaching career. And this invitation allowed me to look back where I first began. I flew from Boston to Denver, and then I looked out from the window and then it was the white cloud. It was so beautiful. So then I was meditating. And when I meditated, I remember those mentors who have been so influential in my becoming a scholar and a teacher. And I also remember someone that I have mentored who during this transition in my own life have been a mentor to me. So I want to address the question, sharing our knowledge from both sides, those who have mentored me and also a mentee who then uh, reciprocate that kind of mentoring that I have done. I must first talk about Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon. When I was a doctoral student at Harvard Divinity School, she had joined the faculty of Episcopal Divinity School for a number of years. And as you know that, she graduated from Union only a few years ahead of me joining the graduate program. So every year, Dr. Cannon will gather a group of women of color and spend a few days together. We were Asians, Black, and Hispanic Latinos. We talk about our own struggle, both in the church and also in academia. At that time, I did not know that I needed a mentor, because I thought that I always excelled in my studies, and I had been accepted to Harvard Divinity School of all place, and then certainly I would make it. I did not know I needed others who told me about racism in the United States and how to survive white academia. 
You must imagine back 30 years ago mm -hmm. at Harvard, how many people looked like me. <laughs> <coughs> so it was those occasions that I learned about reality check. That is, you always need a cohort, a group, to check the reality, because you feel differently. You process the knowledge that you are learning in the classroom differently. Sometimes you don't even have the questions to ask because they have not been formulated. So you need to have an alternative space, a networking site that you can check your own reality and tell yourself you are not crazy or you are not alone. The fact that our group was multiracial and multicultural was even better because one group might see it differently and then the other group process knowledge or feelings differently. So I learned a lot from that cohort group that Dr. Katie Cannon convened. But I must name two of my teachers who actually taught me. The first one I want to name is Mary Daly. She was teaching at Boston College, and so she was so well known. Obviously, coming from Hong Kong, I wanted to take a class with her. I attended her class. I recall that it was only six or seven women. And I, at first, was asking, why so few people? Then obviously, we know that she would not allow men to take regular classes. She would offer them separate tutorials. And for whatever reasons, the class was small. But I learned something very important from her, both from her writing and also from her situation at Boston College, that is living on the boundary. She wrote about it, but she actually lived on the boundary. So learning from her, I also understand the importance of not being at the center. Because the center is always boring. Can you see? <laughs> it is only on the boundary that you can be creative. That you are not so much co-opted into the power structure. A boundary should not be seen as a line. A boundary is also a horizon. That is, it allows you to see something that if you are not living on the boundary, that you cannot see. I have lived on a boundary most of my life. I was born in Hong Kong, a former British colony, really at the boundary of China, so geographically. And then in academia, I am neither black or white. Now I live in Atlanta, that not being white or black is even much more trickier to navigate, living in the South. But living on the boundary also has a lot of difficulties, isn't it? Because you never know where you are. You never know who you can rely upon. You never know how you are going to form alliances to move ahead. That is why I need to tell you I learned from my another professor, Elizabeth Sulisula-Ferenza. She was teaching at DDS when I was a student uh, uh, of hers. When I did not know what I was trying to do, 
There was one afternoon when I saw her, she said, you did not know how to do what you do or what you are supposed to do because you have to go through so many paradigm shifts. I didn't know that I have to go through paradigm shift. <laughs> she said, now you have to do something from west to east, that is first paradigm. And then from male to female scholarship. And also from the women elite to the less privileged women. So I always remember multiple paradigms shift in scholarship. And that keeps my mind working very hard <laughs> to manage all these paradigm shifts, sometimes better than others. But then when I became a junior faculty, and sometimes I bump into many institutional problems, and there was one advice she has given me that I remember to this day. She said, if your school or institution allowed you to do what you want to do, that is already very good. Do not think or dream that they will be even supportive of your work. I pass on the same wisdom to many junior faculty when they encounter institutional racism or craziness that uh, sometimes occur. I said, do not expect too much. If they allow you to do the work that you are doing, that is already good enough. Just then, go ahead. I have also learned from colleagues who have been lifelong friends. Here I want to name uh, Rita Nagashima Brown, at least half a life long, <laughs> a friend of 30-some years. One time she came to my school and she talked about how as racial minorities we fall into the problem of self-sabotaging ourselves. How it is when we encounter microaggression and racism to the point it filled up so much garbage inside us that almost we could not take it and will spill out all over. And that is why she said, there is a button on our computer program that is called recycle or whatever, and then you have to, uh, or recycling bin, yes. Then you have to push the button to empty it, isn't it? So then metaphorically, we all need to have this button that we push to empty the garbage. <laughs> I think that is so wise, isn't it? <laughs> Isn't it? We take on too much. When are we going to let those crazy things or garbage out of our system so that we can survive? And until that, we can certainly not flourish. So I always remember not self-sabotaging. Have a metaphorical button to empty the recycle bin. <laughs> Now, I want to talk about how a former mentee mentored me. Several weeks ago, I was in Korea giving a talk. And so this student uh, 
came to talk to me, sharing what, what she's doing. She said she had graduated from a doctoral degree program from the United States and went back to Korea. And because she and her husband both were teaching at the same institution, there was a rule that they could only hire one person among the couple, could not have both the man and woman or husband and wife teaching. So she could not find this full-time job. Then I asked, what did you do in the 16 years that you returned to Korea? And she said, in addition to teaching, since it's part-time, that I have begun a ministry. What is that ministry? There is a gay church in Korea, and I went to support and help them. Now, some of us know that working as a supporter or uh, almost like a theologian in residence for the gay community in Korea is very challenging. The Methodist Church in Korea in 2017 decided if you are gay, lesbian, LGBTQ, you cannot go to seminary. Wow. You certainly cannot get a job or ordained. She dared to be a supporter of that community. When she told me, I have been doing that and find joy in doing that, then I was mentored. What do you ask for life? It is not a job. It is not a career. It is a path. Responding in Christian terminology to a call, isn't it? So I look back at my life. I thank many of people sitting in the room, people that I know who have mentored me. It was a wonderful path. It was never a job. It was not just a career. It was a path that I have committed and I found so much joy. As I am near retirement, I pass on the knowledge that I have gained through those years, and hopefully the next generation will stay tall, and they will flourish and find their own path. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feminist Talk Religion, a Feminist Studies and Religion Forum branch project. Feminist Studies and Religion works to center and connect feminists in religious studies through its various platforms, including a journal, books, blog, and forum. We appreciate your engagement with FSR's branches, especially with the forum's podcast, and would love your financial support. You can donate at www.fsrinc.org slash donate. That's www.fsrinc.org slash donate. We wish to express our thanks to all who have contributed to the Feminist Talk Religion podcast. Special appreciation goes to Oluwatumisin Oridane, Sarah Emanuel, Midori Hartman, and Susan Wooliver for their leadership and committee efforts. 
Thanks goes to Sydney Kaplan for her editorial work, Thomas Lejoie and Scott Jackson for creating the music used for this podcast, and Kimmy Monty, Christy Cobb, and Owen Cobb for their creative work on the intro dialogue. Thanks also goes to the interns of Feminist Studies and Religion, Inc. for their work on promoting this project.